Well, we have been in the book of Philippians. I know we've had a lot of announcements today, but y'all ready to dive in? Okay, awesome. We are memorizing a scripture. Does anyone remember which verse in Philippians it is? We're memorizing scripture together. 4-4, four, four, look at you guys. <clears throat> Try to make that easy. 4-4, four, four. Philippians 4-4, four, four. here we go. Let's say it at the same time. One, two, three. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let's say it one more time. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always, again, I will say, <clears throat> rejoice. I mean, a follow-up question is how are we doing at that? But, you know, we can, we can put that in this week. I think there's some times that I could have done that better this last week. But let's be people that rejoice regardless of the circumstances. Okay, <clears throat> so as we dive in today, a couple questions or things I want you to think about. One, I want you to think back to some of the best one or two of the best memories that you can remember. All right, now that you got that in your mind. Now I want you to think about one or two things that drive you crazy. That want to make you pull your hair out. I would bet that both of those, for many of us, involve people. And I would bet that for many of us, they might even involve the same people, <laughs> right? <clears throat> you see, uh, I think many of our uh, best memories and the things that drive us crazy, we could attach names to. And if you're a parent, you have the ability and the blessing to experience both of those from the same person within 30 seconds of each other. That's just, you know, the blessing of parenting. So, relationships or friendships. The reality is relationships, whether they're familial relationships or friendships or church relationships or work relationships, relationships are spaces of great joy and sometimes great pain. And they are that way. Because God designed us to live in the context of relationship with people. That's how we hardwired us, how we made the world. And so in a world that is increasingly consumeristic, that's increasingly individualistic, that is, um, that is increasingly saying, no, I find who I am solely on what I think and feel apart from anyone else, it's no wonder that we're increasingly finding ourselves fractured in our relationships, depressed, anxious, and fearful in our world. You see, because God designed us to be relational and community-oriented people. You see, so the church isn't designed just to be a kind of buffet place where we come and get our spiritual fix and we kind of rate it. And then leave it. And then come the next week and kind of get our spiritual fix. Say, you know, I'll take this. Or, or even more so maybe a Amazon Prime. Where we kind of sit in the comfort of our home and say, okay, I like this worship. But then I'm going to go over to this church for this preaching. Because that pastor stinks over here. The great worship. I don't know about the past. And then I'll get this sermon. And then I'll uh, just kind of go on about my day with Jesus, Right? Now listen, if you're homebound or you have to be home, you know, no condemnation. But God designed us to do church, not Amazon Prime Church, but to do church in the context of relationships, right? Again, 
No condemnation for those of us who have journeyed back to church or have gone through some church pain or different things. I know everyone's in a journey. Uh, but God made us to, to do life with Jesus in the context of relationships with people. And so if we are going to find joy then in our relationships, because God made us to be relational, that means we find God's design for relationships. And so today I want to explore what is the key element to finding joy in our relationships. What keeps us from that and then how do we find joy in relationships that are drainers? Okay, so we're going to look at Philippians 1. We're going to go to the next number of verses from where we left off last week. The, the end of 1, the beginning of 2, starting in verse 27. You can track with me or read it. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and um, come and see that, let me start over, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy... By being of the same mind, of having the same love, of being in full accord in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Powerful verse here. And I want to start right at the beginning in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now that phrase translated in the ESV, manner of life, in the NIV, I believe is let your conduct. That phrase literally means in the Greek to be a to live as a citizen of. So Paul is saying, if you're going to live as a citizen of Jesus, or the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then let your manner be worthy of Jesus and how you live your life. So where are we citizens of? As Christians, we are first citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And I believe Paul is saying here, your activity ought to flow from your identity. If you're first a citizen of the kingdom, then that should be reflected in all of our relationships. Now, as we know, these last years have been a little crazy. And you're going to see this actually every time there's an election cycle. We'll get a little crazy as people. And sadly, we get crazy in the church sometimes as well. We have seen in the last years Christians hating non-Christians. We have seen conservative Christians throwing stones at liberal Christians. We've seen liberal Christians throwing stones at conservative Christians. <clears throat> 
what's going on? You see, I believe what's often happiness in the division that's crept into the church. You see, I believe what's often happened is that we're trading our primary identity as kingdom of God citizens for secondary identities. You see, we're Americans here. Some of us, we vote red. Some of us, we vote blue. Many of us, we're from different cultures. Some of us are even from different nations. But these things, although they can be valuable and a part of who we are, they're not our primary identity. I'm not first an American. I'm not first someone who votes blue or red. I'm not first someone even from a cultural background. I'm not first a white guy from the Midwest that drives a truck, although I am a white guy from the Midwest that drives a truck who's now in California, and I like it here. All right? Our primary identity is as Jesus people. And those identities, even where they have value in and of themselves, become secondary identities because the Bible says our old life is gone and we have been bought with a price by Jesus. And we belong to him now. And what happens is as human beings will always, because of our conscience, live out of our primary identity. So why is it that some people are so adamant to have their voices heard and even put Jesus on it? It's because I think deep inside we often are living from an identity that we deeply believe that is other than Jesus. And to be integrous to who we see ourselves as, we have to make our voice heard. Listen, I'm not downing being politically involved. I'm not downing being involved. We should be, actually. We should have those secondary identities. We should be clearing our convictions to use our voice at times. But not at the extent of our first identity. You say... What Paul is saying is if we believe the good news of Jesus and say that Jesus is my Lord, then how we treat people ought to be fundamentally different than those who are not Christians. Like our relationships ought to be fundamentally different, right? We shouldn't sound like Fox News soundbites with Jesus or CNN soundbites with Jesus slapped on it. In that same spirit of stone throwing and honestly, neither side thinking for themselves oftentimes. Jesus said, well, no, we're Christians by the way we love one another. And so if we're trying to say, Jesus, use my life to change the world, but we're listening to more political commentary than we are the Bible, then we're going to struggle. Right? Right? Because we're feeding our secondary identities more than we're feeding who we are. As I heard one of my mentors say, we're not going to change the world by living like everyone else. We want to be Jesus' people, and this matters. So, what is the mark of the believer living out love for one another? I want to look at that. How are we doing this morning? All right, good. You all good? Are you awake? Okay. Uh, let's go back to verse 27 and 22. Paul said, he said that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, 
We see this theme continued in verse 2. He said, complete my joy that of being of the same mind, here's some of these same phrases, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Paul is saying, complete my joy. Complete my joy by being unified in the midst of a divided world. Complete my joy by being willing to lay your secondary identities and preferences on matters that are secondary at the door. doesn't mean you lay them aside altogether, but be willing to lay them at the door for the sake of exalting Jesus and loving your neighbor. And Paul says, if we're doing that, that's going to make me more joyful. And we like joy around here, right? I don't know if y'all are convinced. We like joy around here, right? We, we like joy. And so I believe joy in our relationships comes from our oneness. Joy in our relationships comes from our oneness. And as we'll see, that takes a little work. And so I want to define what oneness isn't and then define what oneness is. First of all, oneness is not just harmony, right? It's not just being nice to other people and laying aside what's actually going on inside of us and stuffing it, right? I grew up, like I said, in the Midwest. There's a phrase called Minnesota nice. I grew up with that, you know. To look like Jesus oftentimes in a Christian family in Minnesota means you're just nice to everyone. You just smile and wave regardless of what's going on, and you just smile and wave. In fact, there's a little two-finger on the steering wheel, everyone that drives by, right? Uh, right? That, that's good, but it's not oneness, right? Um, and so, uh, so oneness is not just harmony, in fact, we are going to disagree on different things. And guess what? That is good. That is good. And there's a phrase used throughout Christian history that we have unity in the essentials and liberty in the non-essentials. That we can disagree on secondary points and still be unified around Jesus. So unity does not mean we don't have conflicts. Unity does not mean we don't have differences of opinion and challenges in our relationships because we will. And oftentimes addressing those challenges is necessary to have oneness and unity. Now secondly, unit, you, um, sorry, oneness is not harmony, but it's also not uniformity. <clears throat> I am glad that Jesus didn't just die for the church to be all one color and flavor. Anyone thankful for that? He didn't die for like just the one, one flavor church. Jesus died for all people. And guess what? He made us different giftings. He made us of different cultural backgrounds. He made us of different passions. He made us of different socioeconomic backgrounds. He made us of different family origins. And guess what? He wasn't like, oh, that one's good, that one's good. Oops. That one came out in a different order. And, ooh, this one went way off the rails over here. This is bad. They should be more like this person. Oh, what am I going to do? No, no. He made us differently. And he said, it's good. He said, it's good. And so when we get saved and join a church, we don't check all of ourselves at the door for the sake of unity. 
We bring our gender. <clears throat> we bring our familial background. We bring our unique story. We bring our gift set. We bring our culture of origin to church. And when that is submitted to Jesus, that becomes a gift in a diverse body of Christ. And so we need that. We don't just want uniformity for the sake of unity because they're not the same. <clears throat> we actually want diversity in the context of unity. Now, what oneness is, let's take a look at what Paul describes. He says oneness is striving in one mind and in one spirit, striving together. When I hear striving together, I think of a team. Now, I think of a movie like Remembering the Titans. I don't know if there's any football people out here. My son just finished his flag football season. We had a lot of fun. Uh, but in Remember the Titans, it was not free of conflict. It was not free even of racial division and conflict. They had to work through challenges. They had to work through differences of opinions. They brought their different backgrounds to the table. And instead of stone throwing, they pressed in. They had hard conversations. And they figured it out because they had a goal that was greater than just hanging on to their opinions. Now that's a football movie, but it's a little picture of what we're called to do in the body. Paul is saying we are to strive together for the sake of the good news of Jesus. So another definition for oneness would be the state of being undivided. The state of being undivided. Now, that does not just happen. You see, I think we oftentimes enter into a relationship with someone or we enter into a church and then we encounter a problem. And then we're like, oh my goodness, we have division. Oh my goodness, this wasn't meant to be. Oh my goodness, something is wrong. No, no, oneness isn't just something that happens because we pray and all of a sudden it just emerges. Oneness is something we fight for. Often, literally times, we fight for. Oneness is something that is worked for. Oneness is something that is chosen. Oneness is something that requires Jesus. It is a byproduct of the good news working out in our heart. And so what is our source then of oneness? What is our source of relational joy? Because what I'm talking about ain't easy, right? If you've been around the block for a while, let's take a look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul starts out by saying if. It's a conditional clause. If one thing is true, then the other thing is able to be true. What is Paul talking about with if? He's saying if there is comfort in the love of Christ, if there is any participation in the Holy Spirit, if there's fellowship essentially with the Holy Spirit happening, if there's affection and sympathy that's being received by a Savior who's gracious, if we are meeting with Jesus Paul is saying, then our hearts will be full. So Paul is not questioning, is our Savior sympathetic? Is Jesus comforting? Questioning if this is even possible. He's saying, no, no, if this is happening, then we have strength 
to be one. Then we have strength in our marriages. Then we have strength in our friendships. Then we have strength in our family of origins. Then we have strength in our life groups to work through our differences and our challenges to be one. And the result, Paul is saying, will be joy. And like I said, we like joy. We like joy. You see, Paul's acknowledging that joy is not just something we always have because we are categorically a Christian. That oneness is not something we always have because like, oh, I'm saved now. All my relationships will be easy. No, no, that's not what's happening. Paul's acknowledging we have human needs. We have needs to be loved unconditionally. We have needs to be cared for by other people. We have needs to feel accepted. We have a need to feel significant. We have a need to feel seen and valued. And those are not bad. Those are human needs. God did not make you a person that just automatically has every need met because you ate Cheerios for breakfast or something like that. He designed us to have needs and them to be primarily met in him. But what we tend to do, right, is we tend to take the need that can be only primarily met in God and go to other people. And we sound like a vacuum cleaner, right? I need you to love me. I need you to give me what my dad didn't give me. I need you to be perfect for me. I need you to always be there for me all the time and always understand every facet of my heart. I need you to understand every aspect of my background. Right? And we start to kind of suck life from people from us. Now, that's not bad to have needs in a community of people. Right? But what we tend to do, if we're not getting our needs primarily met in God, we tend to demand them from people. What we're not getting met in God, we tend to demand from people. And when people don't perfectly meet our demands, we tend to get dysfunctional. Right? Any dysfunctional people in here? I'm dysfunctional sometimes, right? We could all give a little, little glory dysfunctional wave in here, right? <clears throat> Some of us were dysfunctional in overt relational ways. We yell. We tell people what to do. Name call, sometimes even, hopefully not in here, but different forms of abuse or verbal abuse or spiritual abuse, walking out on relationships, publicly canceling people, right? Or maybe we get dysfunctional relationally in covert ways. We send that slightly passive-aggressive text, but it's kind of had a smiley face and a praying for you on it or something in there. We make ourselves look good so that people can think we're great. We do something so that we'll get something back from someone else with expectations attached. We subtly pull back or begin to withhold from someone. You see, one looks worse than the other, but they both produce death. One is death by walling off from other people, and the other is death by strangling people. But neither how you'd get death, neither of them work, right? And you see, I think we sometimes hear this phrase that like, you complete me. And we're looking for that person to complete us. 
my half and your half, when I find that person, or when I find that church, or when I find that small group, or when I find that best friend who will never leave or forsake me, they'll always be there for me. They'll always be a comforter and a counselor and a friend. They'll almost be omniscient and omnipresent. They'll be amazing. When I find that person, then I'll be complete. Then I'll be okay with myself. But that's not how relationships work. It's not one half plus one half equals a whole. Relationships are one whole person, or at least getting more whole person, because <laughs> none of us have arrived, plus another at least getting whole person and taking ownership for their stuff equals a whole couple or a healthy relationship, not just talking about the context of dating. You see, oneness in our horizontal relationships is the overflow of our oneness in our vertical relationship. If we want to be one here, if we want to be people that give grace instead of stone throwing, if we want to be people that are patient, if we want to be people that don't just blow up our friendships and our marriages, but actually use conflict to go deeper in our marriages and our friendships, that means we need to be doing this so that we can be okay doing this. We have a God who is unlike any person in your life. He will truly never leave you or forsake you. He will truly always be there for you. He will truly always know every facet of who you are. He suffered like you suffer. He's experienced pain like you experience pain. He's experienced loneliness like you've experienced loneliness. And yet through all of that, he honored, loved, and went to the cross. And he rose again, defeating the power of that death so that you can be filled and have life. I love this verse in Romans 5, 8. It says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die for you because you were a good person, because you were a good Christian, because you were a churchgoer. Jesus died for you because he loves you. And that's good news because when it feels like your life's blown up and you want to punch people, guess who still loves you? Jesus. And you can get filled anytime. You can come back to the source anytime. You can find strength any time, because he will truly never leave or forsake you. When you are going through relational troubles, you can come back and plug in again. When you're ready to give up, you can plug in again. I was thinking of uh, the old phone, right? When the phone dies, Anyone, I can't stand it like five minutes when it dies and you like need to urgently get a hold of someone and you plug it in, it just gives that little battery. And I'm like, I gotta call someone right now, right? I was in the middle, someone was sharing their heart with me over the phone and it died. <clears throat> but the thing with the phone, right, is when it's dead, you can do all that you want on the outside. You can throw it. Some of you tried that. You can yell at it. You can tell it what to do, but if it's dead, 
You can do all you want on the outside, but it's not going to work on the inside. You see, because the absence of power on the inside cause it to be dysfunctional on the outside. But when you plug it in, what didn't have strength and power now gets filled, and the power on the inside causes it to be functional on the outside. And so I just want to encourage you in your relationships, you were not made to function without power. You were not made to function without another source. You were not made to function if you are beating yourself up because you keep falling short in a relationship. Let me tell you, you're human. And so today, instead of gutting it out in your own strength again today and going back into that own fight just with your dukes up, get filled up. And then get filled up again tomorrow. And then when you're in the middle of that fight, why don't you put the white flag up and say, hey, guess what? I need Jesus. So I'll be back in five minutes or an hour. Or let's pick this up a little bit because I'm flooded right now. And guess who needs Jesus is me, right? Not you need Jesus. You stink. (laughs) Say, hey, I need a little Jesus to time out right now, okay? We can get filled up. That's, guys, why we talk about spending time with Jesus in this church. Church is great on Sundays. Small groups are great. Those are secondary. We can get fed ourselves. And so come to church. Come get fed here. But we talk about time with Jesus consistently as a church because God desires us to be fed deeply and daily in the depths of his word and in the presence of his spirit so that then we can have strength for the day. That doesn't mean God's not with you if you don't spend time with Jesus. It just means that you can get filled up anytime, every day with him. We've got resources for you. If you want to learn how to spend time with Jesus, we've got a whole packet that'll help you do that. Let us know. We'll get that to you. Now, how do we work this out? This is my last point, and we'll get you to Father's Day lunch What is the pathway to live out this oneness? Let's look at the last two verses here, three and four. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we had a little bit more of this in our world, I think we'd be happier. Now remember, Paul is not saying this, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Look to the interests of others, not just your own. Paul is not writing this from a mountaintop. Paul is in prison. He is in house arrest in Rome. And in fact, he's writing to the church in the city of Philippi where he was persecuted. And it appears, based on the end of chapter 1, that they were being persecuted too. So he's not saying, hey, when everything's cheery and happy... Then, just think of others. When your needs are perfectly met, think of others. Now, Paul is writing from prison to a church being persecuted, and he's saying, elevate others above yourself. Don't be selfish, right? So Paul is giving a clear exhortation of what not to do and what to do. What does Paul not, what does he command them not to do? You want to see that? He said do some things only out of selfish, no, he said do nothing out of selfish ambition 
or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What is selfish ambition? A definition for that is, is electioneering or vying for office. Putting oneself forward or partisanship. Electioneering or vying for office, putting oneself forward or partisan. Basically saying, I am going to put my needs and my wants ahead of others, even to their detriment. Now listen. We're healthy people. We take care of ourselves, right? We believe we need to be self-aware and not throw away our needs. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's saying when I put my wants and my needs and my desires above everyone else's, and that's my pattern of life. Now, what is vain conceit? That is vain glory or self-esteem or empty pride. Being full of yourself, right? Paul is saying do nothing out of these things or way of life. You see, the fruit of these things is defensiveness. The fruit of these things is constant division and relational strife. The fruit of these things are relationships that go at a surface level but don't get deeper. The fruit of these things are pride, insecurity, reactivity, control, and assuming we're right all the time. But what does Paul command them to do? Be humble. In humility, but rather in humility. Paul is commanding them to be humble. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of ourselves less. If he's commanding us not to be full of ourselves, Paul is saying in humility, think of ourselves less and think of him and them more. Again, that doesn't mean We don't care for ourselves or take time for ourselves. But Paul is saying, elevate and consider others even above ourselves at times. You see, our flesh says, I need you to love me. But our spirit person says, because I'm loved, I can focus on you. And because I'm loved, I can elevate you, even if that makes you look better than me. And that's what we see Jesus doing, guys. Jesus is our example of humility. He was God. I mean, he could have done whatever he wanted. He could have rolled up in a Bentley and just dollar bills, you know, just whatever he wanted to do. He could have used his power to crush people. But what did he do? He stepped in with the poor. He stopped for the one, and he elevated others around him. God could have been anything, and that's who he is. You see, humility with Jesus consistently made a way for breakthrough in people's lives. It made a way for healing in people's lives. It made a way for the poor to get helped, for the sick to be healed. Humility, when Jesus stepped low, produced healing and unity. And humility in our relationships is what will also produce healing and unity. I heard one, put it, one person say, the difference between you and me, the gap between you and me, is bridged by humility. The gap between you and me is bridged by humility. Humility is the secret ingredient to healthy relationships. Humility is the secret ingredient 
to deep friendships that last a lifetime. Humility is the key to a healthy marriage. Humility is the key to healthy parenting. Humility is a key to effective ministry and caring for one another. Humility is a key to being like Jesus in our workplace. Humility is our key. How do we walk out humility? A couple simple ways. One is others' awareness. That's what Paul talks about. Others' awareness. You see, we live in an outrage culture where we gather voices like us to ourselves and then our algorithms help us do that and we only listen to people like us and then we get real mad about people that are not like us and don't see it. And then we, from the comfort of our vehicles, we honk our horns. And from the comfort of our couches with our phones, we quarterback everyone and tell them what they should be doing. We throw stones at people that aren't different from us, right? And we focus on being heard and being understood. But what Jesus models is he stops and says, I wonder what they're thinking. I wonder what they're feeling. And he had an ability to step into people's worlds, setting apart his own world to step into someone else's world and know exactly what they need through conversation, through listening, through care, through empathy, through compassion. That's what Jesus did. If we will listen first and be aware of others' needs, our spouses' needs, our friends' needs, you are going to see Corners turn quickly in our relationships. Secondly, the way we walk out humility, responding in the opposite spirit. When someone wrongs us, not going Old Testament eye for eye, tooth for tooth on them, but what did Jesus say? Love our enemies. What did Jesus say when someone tries to take something from us? This is hard for me. Give them extra, Right? He's saying, respond in the opposite spirit. Respond when you're hated, respond in love. When someone doesn't understand you, seek understanding for them. Responding in the opposite spirit. Instead of deflection, which is a form of defensiveness, receive feedback. Listen. I did this yesterday in marriage. I was frustrated because my wife gave me that look. Some of y'all know what that look is from that spouse. Disapproving. I got that look. It frustrated me. So you gave me that look. But then she went on to share how what I had done had frustrated her. And I had the moment and the option to be, you still gave me that look. And I don't like when you give me that look. Or to say, oh, now I get why you gave me that look. Now some of y'all have gotten that look before. And all of a sudden... I came in a little kind of frustrated. All of a sudden, that turned into a sweet place of, oh, understanding and unity in our marriage that really became a great place of strength throughout the day. We actually talked about it numerous times. Responding in the opposite spirit, listening and understanding, receiving feedback. Lastly, being quick to forgive and repent. The Bible says don't let, our sun, don't let the sun go down in our anger. So essentially, what it's saying is that when we have stuff stored up in our soul, it creates kind of a toxic environment for us. We hang on to our anger. We hang on to our bitterness. Humility keeps short accounts 
Humility keeps short accounts in our relationship. It's not hanging on to the thing that person did last week or a year ago or four years ago. Humility is quick to forgive. Humility goes to the other person that might have something wrong to you. I had a couple people this week from years ago. I was saying, Jesus, how do I, what are you speaking to me? I had a couple relationships from years ago. I called up this week and said, hey, if I wronged you, please let me know. Because I feel like for whatever reason, that just didn't end the best. And so I want to check in with you. And guess what? I had a couple great conversations. But I had to say, Lord, I think it was mostly on that person. But Lord, is there? And, and it was. There were some things I had done that are wrong these people. And we had great conversations. In fact, I'm getting dinner with someone here uh, in a couple weeks, someone I hadn't talked to in years that, you know, hadn't seen around. And, and it is going to be, I think, just a powerful time because of the conversation we had. It's keeping short accounts, being quick to seek forgiveness and to forgive. And so for the call for us today as we end is to do what the Scripture calls us to do, is humble ourselves. And so just a few points of reflection, if we can get some of the band up here. Because you see, if, if we're all to be honest, we probably have some relationships that are coming to our mind right now. <laughs> and Ephesians 4 in the NIV, Paul said, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bound of peace. Make every effort. Scripture's calling us to say, whatever it takes, let's do whatever it takes to be unified. You can't control other people or how other people respond. But we want to do whatever it takes to walk in unity. And so, just a few simple questions as we reflect. Who is that person or that relationship that's come to your mind throughout this message? And what is an act of humility that you might need to do to go to that person, to make that right, to take the low road. What does humility look like in this relationship this week? And then instead of making a grandiose idea that you feel good about in this moment, let's actually think through when and how are we going to go do that. So let's just take a second as the band is maybe just strumming up here for a minute. Let's just take a second and ask Jesus and think this through.